Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. For Christians all over the world, whether or not we're talking about online or even just having a discussion with a friend over coffee, the fact is you might have heard someone tell you something along the lines of, well, that scripture doesn't really apply to us. And we're not simply talking about Old Testament texts that someone might differ in their application, but we're talking today about New Testament texts and whether or not they actually apply to the church. And guess what? We're going to be talking about dispensational theology. So with all of that, today to discuss this very important topic for us today is none other than the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel. Praise God. We need to deal with this subject because it is vitally important for our walks. Because if you, and we affirm a lot of what dispensationalists believe, some might mistake us and they do at times as dispensationalists, because a lot of what they hold to is true. But when you look at the falsehoods and the false conclusions and applications and implications of what they get out of their teaching, becomes very, very serious as to actually setting aside a whole passage of Scripture that Jesus made and made very, very uh applicable to us as the the church. So it's heartbreaking because a lot of people are going to be deceived based on when the Antichrist appears and so forth, based on the teachings of dispensationalism. So we need to take it apart, really look closely at it, what we affirm and what we disagree with. Yeah, I think that is one of the one of the more important things is to recognize those areas where we might have agreement, but also to point out, hey, this is actually an error that will have application in your walk with Christ. Mm -hmm. application in the events that are taking place, your theology. So we want to look into it. Not only are we going to deal in this episode with dispensational theology, what it is, where it came from, as Joe already mentioned, the agreements that we might have, and also the big, big disagreements we might have. But I wanted to go over a little bit where this question came from, because on this episode, we're going to be dealing specifically with the doctrine of dispensationalism that isn't to the point of hyper-dispensationalism, which we will go over in a consequent episode. But the one we want to deal with now, even though it's not as applicable, we are going to deal with the question at hand that we got from a brother in Christ, one of our, not only our Patreon subscribers, but also he's a brother in Christ that now attends our church here at Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley. And Brother Gerald asked this question. He said, I became concerned when I was discussing Revelation with a brother on Instagram, and he said the warnings to the churches were only meant for them, and that we are saved only by grace, and even if you turn from your faith, you are sealed. Then he told me that I should study dispensationalism. I shook my head. I said no, and then done. So I would love to hear you and pastor's view 
on dispensational theology and the errors in it, the history, etc. So, Joe, just real quick, because we are going to touch on the book of Revelation and those warnings and whether or not they do apply to us. But just as a whole, specifically, like I said on this episode, this version of dispensational theology, we probably won't be delving into in our theological talk more or less than when we exegete the text that we'll be talking about in Revelation. So maybe you could explain why that is real quick. Uh, that would be because dispensationalism will usually look at the Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 as applying to the church because they would say that's two churches that are either in the church age or many dispensationalists will say each of the seven churches, the seven churches representing seven different periods of church history. I would disagree with that because those seven churches he's addressing are little churches that are dealing with it at that very period of time. He says these are the things that are the churches. So there's seven churches. Now all seven of those churches represent different problems throughout church history. So we can glean from each church, but they often say the first church represents this part of church history, the second church, the apostolic age, and so forth. So it's interesting. We would disagree with that, but we say, guess what? Most dispensationalists say, yeah, Revelation 2 and 3 is the church. Unfortunately, many dispensationalists, most of them are once saved, always saved, so they will actually set the warnings aside and say, ah, they're not really threatening our salvation, when many of them clearly are, so there's still a problem. But what we would have a greater problem with the regular dispensationalists, which is what we're going to be dealing with in this particular show, uh, because very your mainstream dispensationalists basically look at the big book Revelation after chapter 3 uh, pretty much as just the church is gone. So most of the book of Revelation does not apply to the dispensationalists, they think. It actually does. And that's why they're in for rude awakening should the eschatological or the eschaton come upon us. No, amen. And like I said, we will, we're going to dig into the theology of it. For sure come upon the church, but I mean in our day and age right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, amen. You know. But uh, we want to deal with the theological issue, and then we're going to go through exegetically those texts, because first of all, I think they're great texts just to go over anytime oh, we yeah. can. So, um, I mean, we're, we're actually called in the very beginning of the book of Revelation as a blessing to those who would listen, heed those warnings, and yeah. so forth. Uh, listen, read, and heed those warnings. So I, I want to definitely go over that. But I guess the first question to get people started, because maybe they're just coming into this, they, maybe they haven't heard the word dispensation or dispensational theology or what is a dispensationalist. So I think the best place to go is simply to ask, what is dispensationalism? And maybe, as we were already asked, maybe we get a little bit of the history behind dispensationalism and where it came from along church history lines. Well, uh, one of the things we often say about our pre-trib brethren, we love them, but uh, it's a Johnny-come-lately teaching, the teaching of the pre-trib rapture, which is a big part of dispensationalism. Uh, dispensationalism, many pre-trib historians, pre-trib historians will agree that you won't find the dispensationalism you see in John Darby in the early church fathers for the first centuries of church history. Uh, many historians that have studied Darby uh, admit that you don't even see the pre-trib rapture in the first centuries of church history. Now, we do believe that the early church fathers, many of them recognize that the Lord dealt with people in different periods of time progressively through what you could call dispensations. So we, so when we're talking about God dealing with people, which basically dispensationalism is, dispensationalism is often defined as God's progressive revelation and how he works with humanity beginning with Adam and Eve in the age of innocence and uh, the age of innocence falls or it comes to an end when you hit uh, the death of or the fall of Adam. Then now you have the age of conscience. Uh, people become aware of their sinfulness and that goes on, uh, you know, throughout uh, the days of Noah and so forth. And then after that, you proceed from Noah to Abraham, and you have 
the age of law, uh, the age of, uh, I'm sorry, the age of human government. And then from Moses, you have the age of, uh, you know, the Mosaic law up to Christ. And then you have the church age. Let me just give you a specific list in case somebody wants to take notes or they just want to pay attention more uh, in a little more depth of an understanding of dispensational thinking. The seven dispensations are innocence, conscience, human government, promise. That's the one I skipped. That would be the patriarchal age, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, age, the age of the patriarchs, law, Moses, grace. And then the seventh one would be the kingdom or the millennial kingdom. And let me give you more specific parameters lest I be accused of misrepresenting what they believe. The dispensation of innocence precedes Adam's fall. The dispensation of conscience spans from Adam to Noah. The dispensation of government spans from Noah to Abraham. The dispensation of the patriarchal rule spans from Abraham to Moses. The dispensation of the Mosaic law spans, of course, from Moses to Christ. The dispensation of grace spans from the throughout the current church age up until the beginning of the tribulation period. Uh, the dispensation of a literal future earthly thousand-year millennial king, kingdom is the thousand-year millennium at Christ's second coming, which is distinguished from a pre-trib rapture, which happens seven years before. So that's basically uh, what's taught in uh, pre-tribulationism, or I should say in dispensationalism uh, and the belief system. When did this teaching come along where someone said, oh, Eureka, here it is, this is what we have. When did that take place? Uh, there were a few uh, Eureka moments that were happening simultaneously. A lot of the smoking gun seems to lie with... Uh, false prophetess when she was a young teenager named Margaret MacDonald. Uh, she wasn't a dispensationalist. Uh, she, many say she's the one that came up with the pre-trib rapture. Uh, we don't even affirm that. Some of uh, the people who wanted to criticize our video, which is an in-depth expose of the origins of pre-trib rapture, falsely represented us saying that we said that Margaret MacDonald, and many, there's a lot of different, a lot of scholars and historians say that Martin. she did start, Walter yeah. Martin included, Dr. Walter Martin, that she started the pre-trib rapture. I, I look at the fine print, I read very carefully, I look at the footnotes and so forth, and I can't find where she clearly started the pre-trib rapture. And we don't affirm that in the video. In fact, we actually say, we don't say, in the video we make it very strong that we don't say she started the pre-trib rapture. What we do see is that she affirms a secret rapture, okay? And that's very clear, and we, we show that clearly before John Darby did in the early 1800s, and that John Darby happened to go to her and listen to her prophecies. And he came to the conclusion that she was a false prophetess. She actually picked the wrong guy for the Antichrist. But she was getting revelation of this secret rapture. And John Darby, subsequent to that, we proved by going through the timeline, uh, we show that Mark McDonald influenced Edward Irving in his Morning Watch magazine. He started affirming on the secret rapture after hearing her prophecies, but a pre-trib rapture prior to Darby. Now, Darby picks up on this pre-trib rapture and he later says, you know what, I came to my understanding that there would be rapture before the tribulation, but he's talking about years before, so then you have to believe him, you know, and I, I have a hard time believing him personally, but either way, let's just take it for what he says. Uh, when I was looking at Matthew chapter 24, and I came to the conclusion that Matthew chapter 24 really didn't apply to the church, it was really regarding this, the tribulation that the Jews would go through. The problem with this is, if you're just talking about these seven dispensations, you don't see any of that in the, the seven dispensations. You don't see, uh, because they don't even call the tribulation specifically a, a uh, dispensation, okay? They basically have the church age ending just before the tribulation and the kingdom age starting just after, but they kind of just skip over the tribulation as kind of a parenthetical deal in between these two dispensations that are part of the seven. So if you look at, the, at what they affirm is a dispensation, 
you'll never get this other baggage. We can affirm probably, Chad and I, we can probably say, yeah, you know, I have no problem saying that was an age of innocence before they fell. I have no problem saying that there was an age of conscience after that. You know, I have no problem saying there was an age of human government after that. I have no problem uh, saying that there was an age of patriarchal promise after that and, and rulership, or that after that there was the age of the Mosaic Law, and then the age of uh, the Church Age. No problem. I can affirm all of that. And at the same time, there will be a literal thousand-year millennium. Amen. If you just look at that, you can say, oh yeah, you might be call yourself a dispensationalist, but you're not. Because dispensationalists come with a whole lot of extra baggage that's not in those dispensations clearly stated. And it's because it's through their, I would say, their, the implications they get from some of their understanding of the dispensations that they read into those dispensations or the latter part of them and their eschatology that they draw false conclusions which have all kinds, are, are fraught with all kinds of different problems. So John Darby is the first one to actually systemize it by saying, hey, Matthew chapter 24 is not really for the church. If somebody can show me anywhere in church history before the 1800s where, where any church was affirming, any, any, any statement of faith was affirming that Matthew chapter 24 is not for the church but only for the Jews, I'd love to see that because I'm, I've yet to see that. And that's why I call it Johnny-come-lately doctrine. And I'm sorry, man. 1,800 years later, no one's seen it in church history. And hey, if it's new, we say it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. It's already been there. And probably you're not the only one that saw it 1,800 years later. That's what cults are made of. And I don't call those who believe in a preacher rapture cultists, but I'm saying it's the same kind of thinking. It's very dangerous. Yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting when you look at it, as you talked about specifically just this idea of church history and going forward. And what's interesting as well, and, and we, we should go over the things that we agree with dispensationalists on. I know you've gone through a, a couple of them, but it is important to recognize something because I know that when we came out with Left Behind or Led Astray, examining the origins of the pre-tribulation rapture. that if they haven't seen that. I think it's the most in-depth uh, examination of the origins of the pre-trib rapture. Yeah, amen. And and when we that, go to the historical sites yeah. where it started and so forth. And when that came out, a number of people came out and said, I mean, you got lambasted. Oh, Good Fight Ministries, Joe Schimmel, they, they don't believe that God has a, pl a plan for Israel in the end times. Which was a lie. Another lie. <laughs> it's Shame, uh, shame, shame. Man. Yeah, no, yeah. It'd be hard to listen to our shows uh, when we talk about prophecy. <laughs> or any of my preaching, man, more, uh, for more than a week or two. Yeah, amen, amen. Not to mention, you know, our heart for wanting to share the gospel with Jews in Israel. Um, I mean, just one of the ways we do that our is, guest speakers like Ted Walker yeah amen and one of the ways that we do that is by showing them God still has a plan for Israel and so absolutely that would be something that I think people need to understand because when somebody says oh well you know they're not uh, they're not dispensationalists you know they're covenantal in the sense that they also believe that God no longer has a plan for Israel the covenant's now with his church and God is done with Israel we are now Israel and so forth it reminds me of the NAR movement if you disagree with it and say it's wrong, oh, you must be cessationists that don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Wrong. We believe in the Spirit. You guys are just way overboard. Or the Calvinist who says, oh, you must not believe in the sovereignty of God if you're not a Calvinist. No, wrong. In fact, we believe that God's more powerful than you do because we believe God can know the future without determining everything that happens. And on and on. And that's what happens if you disagree with the preacher of rapture. Oh, you must not believe God has a place for Israel. And all these things are, are way out there. And what happens, they can't beat you on the Scripture if you're using Scripture. So what they do is they... Oftentimes, and I don't say it's dishonest. Sometimes it's dishonest. Other times it's just like a reaction, you know? No, no, it's true. And and it is important because I, I do believe you're talking about Darby there. You're talking about, well, Matthew 24, clearly, especially 29 through 31, make it clear 
that he gathers the elect from the four winds of the earth and 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 so forth after the tribulation. immediately after the tribulation it makes that i mean that's the language uh, that's what it actually says so jesus taught and and so you look at that kind of thing and you see that text so clearly and then you go well how do i get out of this you know well this is this is how i would get out of it i guess if i'm if i'm john nelson darby and so forth and then that's popularized so we have that going forward but let's get back a little bit because hey we do believe that god has a plan for israel but 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 Joe, how could we believe that if we if if we disagree with dispensational theology? Because we need to find those things, those areas where we do have some agreement. In fact, let's keep in mind before the eighteen hundreds, all the Christians that ever affirmed that God has a place for Israel still were not pre-trip. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that's that's important. Now, to Charles keep in mind. Spurgeon, who we've read from very clearly, said that there is if there's anything yeah. that you can find in Scripture is that God will will rebuild Jerusalem. Well. We'll bring back the no, Jews no, no. He to wasn't their... pre-trip, Chad. So he must have been anti-Israel replacement theology yeah. guy and so forth. No, so no, you know exactly. Uh, so I mean, you, even in the early prophecy, you know, the futuristic uh, view of prophecy in the early uh, 1800s, before Darby and after Darby, uh, there was a strong affirmation that God had a place for Israel by many of them. In fact, I have a book even later than that, but even before Israel became a nation again, by Alexander Reese, who used to be pre-trib, and he converts over to the post-trib position. He writes how Israel's got to become a nation again. That's what the Bible says from a post-trib viewpoint. He has that viewpoint, and sure, if it happens, uh, sadly, after he died, so he missed that, but then again, he had the great best teach you can get for that in heaven, right? So, yeah, let's say what, let's talk about, and I like to do this because I think uh, we count pre-tribs, you know, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and a lot of them love Jesus. A lot of them have inherited their theology by just going to a church that taught pre-trib, or they opened up a Schofield reference Bible, or they who had a lot to do with popularizing the pre-trib, or, or they opened up a left-behind, or I should say a Tim LaHaye study Bible, or a Ryrie study Bible, or many different study Bibles which teach uh, this, and, and they just said, oh, okay, I guess it makes sense. And, and So many of them love the Lord, but they inherit their theology, or or they uh, just, you know, you don't typically find anybody who's, oh, I was just reading the Scripture, and never influenced by pre-trib, that comes to that conclusion. Uh, they won't read Matthew 24 and say, oh, that's just for the Jews. He'll see that Jesus is addressing his apostles, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So here's some affirmations in regard to uh, what we do agree with personally, because we don't believe in covenant theology, and that's the theology, the idea uh, that most Calvinists hold, and that's the idea that there's this or unspecified covenant that God's made, uh, and that we're still in some way uh, under the Mosaic law, you know, in certain ways and so forth, and that it's just one covenant that God's had all along. And then another pre-covenant before the world was and so forth. I don't want to, we'll, do, we'll have to do a whole thing on covenant theology eventually uh, that's held to you by many Calvinists in regard to uh, soteriology. But here's where we would agree with dispensationalists, uh, and many covenant theologians would disagree with us here, but this is where we have, and as I affirm these, it's going to sound like, wow, you guys are dispensationalists. No, they actually state many things that are actually biblical and true that doesn't, that if you just affirm these things by itself, you wouldn't be called a dispensationalist. You might be called progressive dispensationalist or something like that, but you wouldn't be considered a Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, you know, uh, dispensationalist. Uh, we affirm, and I'm going to give you what we affirm to be accurate, uh, with our dispensationalist brothers and sisters that their uh, that prophecy should be un understood literally whenever it could be understood literally, and whether it makes perfect sense to understand it literally. And that means we believe that there will be indeed a literal regathering and that it's already started in 1948 of Israel. And the nation of Israel, like God is not done with Israel. And we believe that there'll be a literal thousand-year kingdom as the Lord Jesus Christ taught in Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 6. 
of that dispensationalists hold those to be biblical truths? Yeah, we see that, that throughout Scripture. Six times in Revelation 20, Jesus mentions the thousand years. So we believe in taking a prophecy literally. Uh, covenant theologians tend to spiritualize prophecy to where it just gets bent into whatever they want it to believe, mean sometimes. Uh, we agree with dispensationalists and also affirm that uh, the church does not pl- replace Israel. Many covenant theolo- theologians and so forth say God's done with Israel and the church has replaced Israel. And the church is basically the sole people of God now. And God's all done with Israel. In fact, what happened in 1948 on May 14th and re-Israel being gathered, that's just an accident of some sort. Strange accident out of all the countries that ever existed. They're actually fulfilling the prophecy that God said they would fulfill. Uh, we also believe uh, and take literally that all Israel will be saved. Revelation, or sorry, Romans chapter 11. We also affirm with dispensationalists uh, that there will be a literal seven-year tribulation period the last three and a half years of which the Antichrist will reign. That's biblical teaching. Uh, we affirm also with our dispensationalist brothers and sisters that there will be a remnant of 144,000 literal Jews uh, mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 14. We also affirm uh, with our, our dispensationalist brothers and sisters that there will be a mass conversion, uh, or I should, restoration of Jews spiritually at the end of the age at Armageddon and that they will see according to Zechariah 12 those uh, uh, him whom they pierced in chapter 13 verse 1 a fountain of cleansing will be opened to the Jews and so forth uh, we also affirm with our dispensationalist brothers and sisters which I've mentioned earlier when we talked about taking scriptural taking the prophecies literal whenever they can be taken literally uh, a thousand year reign of Christ and uh, we also affirm with our dispensationalist brothers and sisters uh, that Israel's rebirth won't just be physical and a big regathering at the second coming of Christ, but that it will be a spiritual uh, rebirth, as I've already emphasized uh, in their salvation. So those are areas, uh, and that's several areas, that we have in common with dispensationalists. And these were things were taught long before Darby. Many of these teachings I'm talking about, I mean, you can find all these teachings long before Darby, and almost all of them probably in the Church Fathers. Yeah, no, I think this is really important. And we actually have an excerpt. Definitely, put by it. the way, a thousand-year reign of Christ being literal. In the oh, Church yeah, yeah. A seven-year tribulation yeah. period, Daniel's 70th week, the reign of Antichrist, a literal second coming, and so forth. And a you know, literal millennial period. Yeah, definitely when you read in the early church, you can't miss the premillennial view. Uh, not until... Not pre-trib, uh, but premillennial, you know, right? Do you, you see Beas, do you see kind of um, that stuff going on? And that makes a lot of sense considering... The, far the prior million, to Eusebius, yeah. as you know. Yeah, yeah. Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and so forth. Oh, yeah, yeah. In terms years. of a pre-mill, yes. Right, right, in terms yeah. of a Absolutely. pre-mill mm-hmm. b- before Eusebius. But you understand, uh, you know, when he was commissioned by Constantine and so forth. And then Why the changed. more popularized view uh, coming out from Augustine after, you know, almost Yeah, because the Catholic after. Church yeah. wanted to rule the world. They say, yeah, there can't be this coming, you know. Uh, we're not going to be defeated and we're just going to take over the earth for Christ and then you have the birth of amillennialism. Not all held that specifically, but then post-mill came and we're going to run a field, but uh, we'll keep getting into it. Yeah, no, we, we definitely need to uh, continue going down this so we understand. So you now hopefully have a good bearing on what dispensational theology is, but also the things that are also, hey, this is where we can have agreement on these things. This is true and so forth. So, Joe, now where do we uh, uh, disagree? What are the things that we disagree with dispensational theology? Right, and instead of saying everywhere where, you know, every, everything about what dispensationalism is, I thought, you know, let's not double up and say the same thing over and over again, which I'm starting to do a little bit, so you can understand dispensationalism. I kept a lot of where we disagree 
uh, and I describe what we disagree with, you'll get a better understanding of what dispensationalists teach as well, which I think is very, very important. Now, uh, T.I. Schofield in his reference Bible stated, quote, each of the dispensations may be regarded as a new test of the natural man, and each ends in judgment, marking his utter failure in every dispensation. So they're bringing some new ideas to this idea that most of Christians affirm that God has dealt differently with Adam and Eve, you know, as far as age of innocence, and then, you know, with the Mosaic law in regard to what he dealt with the patriarchs and, and then with uh, the church age. We'll say, yeah, there's some distinctions you can make. Uh, salvation is always by grace through faith, though. That's the only way we're in, in the kingdom. But uh, what the differences are, then there's new elements that are added to dispensationalism, the idea that each period of time is a time of testing and, and judgment and so forth. And, and if it just stopped there, that's, you know, that could be debatable, but it wouldn't really cause a lot of you know, harm one way or another. But it's these other things where we see we have sharp distinctions and we don't affirm uh, the beliefs of dispensationalists. And keep in mind, we're talking pretty much here about mainstream dispensationalism. We're not talking about mid-Acts where, you know, half of, part of Acts is to the church and the first parts to the Jews uh, and what's considered often hyper-dispensationalism. We're going to get a, do a whole teaching on that as well because that's very, very dangerous. Many dispensationalists that are mainstream will affirm that as well, that that's dangerous. Uh, but by the way, if you want to, if you want to understand dispensationalism, you know, some of your older folks in the Lord, you'll remember, you know, how it got really popular during Hal Lindsey's time, the late great planet Earth, and then later, uh, then you don't have to be too old. You probably, you know, you can be in your 20s and you probably read some Left Behind books maybe, or 30s. Beginning at 2000, uh, the first, you know, the Left Behind movies and prior to that, uh, Left Behind books by Tim LaHaye. Those books, you know, not single-handedly, but they had a great impact on the body of Christ in turning many to dispensational thought. Uh, and here's where we would disagree with uh, the, the dispensationalists, some of the areas uh, that we would disagree with. And I think this is important. They often have and understand that for eternity, there's two distinct people of God. Now we affirm, and this where it can get a little tricky if you don't really think about it and pay attention. We affirm that God has a plan for national Israel, that the promises that God made to national Israel are, are not nullified. Uh, some, many teach, well, when they rejected the Messiah covenant theologians and so forth at the cross, God's dead, done with the nation of Israel. No, there's all kinds of different promises and prophecies that uh, are very, very clear that God has never reneged on and he's faithful and true to them and he always will have a remnant uh, that he will not is not done with national Israel so uh, what would be the difference then and, and then also there is the church which is made up of Jews and Gentiles the difference is is the the pre-tribulationist the dispensationalist usually typically affirms that there are two people of God and these two people of God will go into eternity as distinct people that Israel will be a distinct people from the bride of Christ and oftentimes they'll call Israel the wife of God and, you know, the church is the bride of Christ. Two distinct people. So what you have is God's being portrayed as a bigamist and he's a two-timer. He's got a, a, a two different wives, basically, for all eternity. When you read Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22, it's very, very clear in the end there is one bride. And you even see when the bridal city is, and she's, the New Jerusalem is decked as a bride because the Lord's people are there, you see in that city... Uh, you see the foundation stones, and then you see the gates. And when you look at the foundation stones, the gates, you see the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. You see the 12 names of the 12 apostles. You see that there's one bride united at the end, and it's a beautiful, beautiful love story. God does not end his love story as a two-timing bigamist. So that's where we would have a disagreement. In fact, in my debate with, uh, that was a question that came up when we were in Colorado, and we debated, I debated Dr. Uh, Stauffer, 
And the idea came up as in regard to the bride, and I basically stated what I stated here, and he said he, he was unsure of what the Bible taught there, even though he'd be considered a dispensationalist. At one time, a hyper-dispensationalist, but after the debate, he changed, or at least he, he, he said he was going to change his book on a taught hyper-dispensationalism because he had long before, he said, left that position. So uh, we'd also disagree and not affirm and disagree with our dispensationalists brothers and sisters, that there's a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. So what happens is, it's almost like they get this pie and they say, hey, look, there's seven slices here. And I don't have a hard time with the seven slices. I'd probably even add a slice. I would add the new heavens and the new earth, you know, as part of the dispensation of how God deals with humanity. So I'd have even probably another slice that more than your typical dispensationalist, although they probably have eight too if they admit seven years they're kind of leaving out there in their pie. But what happens is they get this pie, and we could say, yeah, there's different ways that God dealt with man in different, at different time periods through progressive revelation and so forth. I don't have a hard time with that. It's all this other baggage that comes along where they start saying, well, this piece of pie is only this big. And this pie, you know, this good piece of pie that we get is huge, you know. And the tribulation pie, oh, we don't go there. The church isn't going to be in that because that's a yucky piece of pie. And it's just because then it becomes very, very subjective, and then they start pushing their subjective feelings upon the scripture. This idea that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two distinct kingdoms. They, they teach that the kingdom of God is basically God's sovereign rule over the universe. Where the, the kingdom of heaven more specifically deals with Christ's earthly reign when he comes to rule in the millennial period. Uh, there's a problem with that. Because the term kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, very clearly, it doesn't take a lot of study. You can do it. I've done it more than once. Uh, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are used interchangeably. When you read Jesus' parables in Matthew, you read them in Mark, you'll see the same parable, oftentimes given at the same time. It's definitely the same parable. And Mark chooses to use the kev- uh, Matthew chooses the ke- kingdom of heaven language, where Mark uses the kingdom of God language. Speaking of the same, it's not a contradiction, it's the same kingdom, okay? Otherwise, you would have a contradiction, absolute contradictions. And then in Matthew 19, 23 and 24, Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler, and he's talking about entering the kingdom of God. And then the very next verse, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Talk about the same kingdom. He's not talking about two different kingdoms, inheriting two different kingdoms there. So, I mean, Matthew 19, 23, and 24 just put the kibosh, boom, down on that view. And also, uh, we have a difference in opinion in regard to uh, this postponed kingdom that many uh, many uh, dispensationalists have, but many mainstream dispensationalists, they don't all believe in a postponed kingdom. That's a whole other thing to get into, which uh, can of worms we don't have time to get into. But many of them, mainstream dispensationalists, believe the kingdom is, is, is future. It's, 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 it's all pretty much future. And uh, they don't recognize that the Bible has this, uh, this element that we've already entered into the kingdom spiritually. Colossians 1, 13 says that we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. If you're a genuine believer, read Colossians 1, 13. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom, into the kingdom of God's dear son. We are in God's kingdom right now, spiritually speaking. Then there's the inauguration of his physical millennial kingdom at his second coming when it says in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of Christ. It speaks of him who was and is, but no longer says is to come in Revelation 11 because he's come and it says his great wrath has come and uh, he was enraged at the nations and it became time to uh, reward the saints, you know, the small, the great and so forth. And that's at the second coming when at Armageddon, it's a picture of Armageddon in Revelation 11, there at the last trumpet that Paul speaks of the rapture. The last trumpet, you go to the last trumpet, it's right there, Revelation 11, 15 through 19. 
and Christ reigns. It's not a secret pre-trib rapture. It's right there. And that's when he rewards the saints. And Jesus says later in Revelation, Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. And we see him rewarding the saints after the last trumpet there. Seventh trumpet, when he inaugurates the kingdom. My point is, is that the Bible does speak of us being in the kingdom uh, now, but we don't believe in kingdom now doctrine, which says the physical kingdom is supposed to be ours right now too. We're supposed to take over the earth. That's a, that's a heresy. Okay, that's a false teaching. Uh, however, we do believe that we've entered into the kingdom spiritually, or we have to deny Colossians 1, 11 through 13. But we also believe there's a physical manifestation of his kingdom when he inaugurates the thousand-year reign of Christ. Also, I think this is important, is that dispensationalists make a strong, sharp, artificial distinction between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, as though they're two totally different events. Okay, That is not scriptural. These are things that mainstream dispensationalists, all of them affirm, okay? Also, uh, and it's important to understand this, is uh, they make a sharp distinction between the timing of the rapture and the timing of the second coming, as though they're two separate comings. The pre-trib rapture is before the tribulation takes place, could be right before, could be any amount of, amount of years before, according to some pre-trib teachers, and the second coming is at the end of the tribulation uh, period. These are not biblical teachings not found in church history uh, prior to the 1800s. Dispensationalists make a sharp distinction between the nature of Christ's coming uh, in regard to the rapture and the second coming. The rapture is a secret coming. Nobody sees it. Uh, Christians are the only ones that are where it's coming really, except some non-believers who you know, fiddle with it. And they're caught up. And then uh, for the next seven years, the tribulation takes place. And then the second coming, the nature is quite different. Every eye will see him. It's a separate coming and so forth. Although sometimes they'll say, well, it's not really the same coming. It's the, it's, it's, it's this, I mean, a different coming. It's the second coming. It's just divided by seven years. Can you imagine me telling my kids, hey, I'll be back, you know, and I'm going to come back another time, a second time. And then all of a sudden they find out, well, what, we missed that? Well, yeah, he came back and, and he's coming back seven years later, but it's the same time he said he's going to come back. Makes no sense at all. In fact, uh, they make, so they mess with the nature of the coming, the timing of the coming. Dispensationalists, uh, well, they, uh, mess with the second coming and the rapture, and they make them two distinct purposes. The, dis the purpose of the rapture is to uh, rapture us from the earth uh, seven years before the second coming so we can escape enduring the great tribulation period and not have to, uh, you know, experience any God's wrath. Even though, guess what? The Bible is very clear when you read the book of Revelation that he pours out his wrath on the wicked and he protects the righteous. Even the Left Behind movies and Left Behind books have God sparing the righteous on earth, what they call the tribulation saints. So any pre-tribber that's into that theology where they say, oh, well, how can God spare you if, if he doesn't rapture you from the wrath of God? It's going to be so radical. I'm like, have you read Tim Lay's books? He has the tribulation saints being spared from the wrath of God. Why can't we be them? Ah, uh, you know, they have no answers for these things, you know. So it's interesting when you, you think these things through. Dispensationalists claim that the church is a total mystery, never revealed in the Old Testament at all, period. Okay? And they take the Greek word musterion in the New Testament and say Paul calls the church a mystery and so forth, and they treat it as though it wasn't revealed at all. Now, when you really look at what the Bible teaches regarding the church, I can give you all kinds of prophecies that show that it was revealed in the Old Testament, but it wasn't clearly revealed in the Old Testament. Okay? Because the prophets longed to look in, even as the angels, into these things. But they basically, it was being revealed. Okay? In fact, uh, you have several promises in the Old Testament that are given in prophecies to Israel, to the kingdom of Judah, to the nation of Israel, uh, in regard to their future. 
that are, guess what, applied to the church, okay? And I believe what we have is a double fulfillment. In fact, the New Testament writers seem to understand that uh, many of these prophecies that were to Judah and Israel were being fulfilled in the church. The covenant theologian uh, says, oh, look, the church has replaced Israel wrong. There's a double fulfillment. And the, the pre-tribber or the dispensationalist says, oh, well, uh, those aren't really for the church. Uh, they just have some things common with those prophecies of Israel, things like that. But you can look at being a chosen priesthood, uh, you know, a royal priesthood, a chosen people there from Exodus, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 or so. Uh, Peter's quoting them in regard to the church. You can look at Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2 in regard to, uh, you know, the end of the age and there'll be, you know, pillars of smoke and, and the sun will turn, you know, black and the moon to blood and so forth. And Joel quotes that and says, this is that when they see on the day of Pentecost, believers speaking in tongues. He says, this is that which was prophesied by Joel. Your old men will prophesy or have dreams and and, and we got all these other things that, you know, your, 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 young, your young women and so forth will uh, prophesy and so forth. So it's kind of interesting. He says, this is that, Peter. But at the same time, there's more to it than just that. Because Peter's talking also, or say Joel's also talking about what? The great and terrible day of the Lord, right? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord should be saved. He's talking about Israel being saved in the end. So what's going on there? There's a double fulfillment. There's the near and far fulfillment. We see that with a lot of prophecies regarding Christ as Messiah, his first coming and his second coming. Sometimes together in one verse, separated by English comma, but not in the original Hebrew. So uh, we also see that with other prophecies, like he makes, a new, I'll make a new covenant, chapter 31, verses 31 through 33. Uh, uh, we read there in the book of Hebrews, the fulfillment of, of Luke, or I should say Jeremiah 31, where he says, I'll make a new covenant with Judah and the house of Israel, and it won't be like the covenant I made with their fathers at Mount Sinai. He's talking about the Mosaic law. And he's gonna make this with Judah and Israel. But guess what? You go to Hebrews chapter eight, you go to Hebrews chapter 10, and you see these quoted and applied to the church. Well, guess what? There's far more to that prophecy than its fulfillment in the church at that time only, because guess what? It goes on to say right after those first three verses, 31, 32, and 33, and verse 34, he says, no longer shall they say, you know, uh, that this person needs to be taught and what have you, because the knowledge of the, the Lord is gonna fulfill, fill the earth, and that's the millennial kingdom. You won't even have to be taught. The, the, the knowledge of God will be there for all believers because we'll know as we're known at the time because as believers will be resurrected. So we see a near and further uh, aspect of this double fulfillment, which, guess what? It puts the kibosh both on covenantalism and, and dispensationalism because it puts the kibosh on dispensationalism because it shows that, guess what? There's promises that are in the Old Testament that reveal that the church wasn't a total mystery and that God had a plan for the church. And, and there's application of those prophecies to, uh, to the church and fulfillment, actual fulfillment in the church. However, it puts the kibosh on covenantalism because they want us to believe that God's done with Israel and there's no more place for Israel and the church has replaced Israel. Wrong, because we see those prophecies still have a future fulfillment by just looking at the prophecies as well. And actually they're applied. Uh, we see the book of Revelation and so forth. A couple more differences uh, that, that we would have is, uh, and I think this is important, uh, when we're dealing with the national Israel, they make a strong distinction uh, between God's plan for national Israel and the New Testament church. And I believe too strong to where they make the church a mystery. We've pretty much covered that already, but understand that God makes a definite distinction, but there is carryover. And they make such a strong distinction, and this is an important point you want to understand. They want to believe that since, I'm talking about this dispensationalist now, they want to believe that the Mosaic law was put to an end when Christ died on the cross. And I say yes and amen to that. 
Okay, we're now under the new covenant law and the church age started. But now God is not really dealing with Israel. He's just dealing with the church. And then when the tribulation starts, just before it, he's going to take the church off, end of the church age, and now he's going to be dealing with Israel again. As though God can't walk and chew gum at the same time. As though he can't do both these things. But you know what you see in the scripture? Just go through the book of Acts. You see God dealing with Israel and the church at the same time. You go to Acts chapter 2. You have prophecy regarding Joel and what his promises to Israel. Peter's dealing with the Jews. You go to Acts chapter 3, and Peter quotes the prophets and says that if they repent, God will bring the restoration of all things, which he declared since the prophet Samuel and so forth. If you continue on uh, and through, through the scripture, you see in Revelation, uh, well, uh, we're just talking about right now. Right now we're in the church age. God's not really dealing with Israel. What happened on May 14th, 1948? You know, God's still dealing with Israel. He, made, he sovereignly moved to bring them into uh, becoming a nation again. Uh, in fact, right now, as we talk, Romans 11, and since the, Paul, Paul wrote this, and it will continue to go on, God uses Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy, to bring them to Christ. God is still working on Israel. He's still working on the church. And we don't want to say, and it's wrong to make such a strong decision. Say, no, he only deals with one at a time. That is arbitrary. That is unscriptural. That is putting in their system. So this is what's, this is what's sad to me, is they say, hey, look, God deals with people in these seven dispensations of time. I have no problem saying, yeah, there's, God deals with people differently at different times. But if you didn't saddle with all these other things, you could, you know, there's a lot of truth there. But guess what? If you weren't saddling with other things, no one would call you a dispensationalist because no one would go around saying, I believe that God dealt with people in different, in different ways at different times. Everybody say, well, that's obvious. It's, you know, people might cut their pie differently. But yeah, what they call themselves dispensationalists for is based on their eschatology, saying, you know, we're going to escape the tribulation period. We're not going to be appointed to uh, these things and so forth. So I'll give uh, a couple more distinctions and then we'll move on. Uh, a critical difference that we have between them, of course, is the dispensationalists, uh, they don't heed and they don't pay attention to the warnings that Jesus gave to prepare us for the coming tribulation period that he gave specifically to the church. And therefore, they leave the church in dire straits and unprepared because dispensationalists are waiting for it at any moment, preacher rapture, and often will say, God would never let us go through that. And, 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 and it's kind of interesting. The irony here is that it almost like, like we're elite in some way. And the church is so weak right now and so pathetic, but we want to think God won't let us go through that. He's going to let the Jews go through that, though. You know, And it's like, it even borders on, to me, a, a bit of anti-Semitism when you say, uh, we would never, God would never do that to us you know, as Gentile believers. But he's going to let the Jews go through this horrific time in the future. So I think it's very, very important that we understand uh, that the church is ill-prepared. And that's one of the, and I, I guess that's going to dovetail into, you know, the specific problems or dangers of the dis mainstream dispensationalism. Yeah, I think that's that's a huge, uh, huge issue. And, and and somebody, and we've had a couple people ask, so I might as well throw this out there. Some people are pointing out, hey, is this because you believe in a progressive dispensationalism, which that doctrine is obviously very different than what we are talking about here in dispensationalism, even though it has the same word. So maybe just a, a quick, before we get to the last question, do, would you say that we actually agree or believe in a progressive dispensational theology outlook? I believe that it's obvious that the Lord has dealt with different people in different times in different ways. I believe there's been progressive revelation. I don't really call myself, I mean, you could call us progressive dispensationalists, but if I'm going to call myself something in regard to eschatology, I'll just call myself 
pretty much a classical post-tribulationist with a uh, belief also that God has a uh, a plan for Israel still and so forth. Uh, because by using some type terms, you know, you get saddled with other things. So if I call myself a progressive dispensationalist, some may not hear the word progressive, or they might think, oh, that means liberal in some way, or they might think, oh, he's a dispensationalist, he must believe in the preacher rapture, because most Christians don't understand those terms, but for someone who understands those terms, you can you could use that, I guess, but I would call myself a biblical, but I don't even do this, but if I was pressed, what do you believe in regard to dispensations, I would say I'm a biblical dispensationist, I don't accept all this baggage that is saddled on dispensationalism. So you could use that term of yourself, if, in, in, but then you have to just describe what that means. But I can say right now from the outset, uh, if you look at what we believe, uh, there's going to be differences in what progressive dispensationalists believe and what we're stating here. So, uh, And there's different degrees of what people believe in regard to progressive dispensationalism. But uh, but yeah, no, I can understand the question. And, and I've even used the term of myself before that you might call me that. So I, I appreciate the person's insight there. But I would call myself a biblical dispensationalist. <laughs> and so I say, well, all of them think they're biblical. Well, guess what? Show me in the Bible where it says there's a preacher rapture. One verse. We had $10,000 on the table. Nobody could come up with one. They're not biblical dispensationalists. They are extra biblical dispensationalists. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.